Psalm chapter 7. I'm going to read it and we're going to pray and dive right in. So if you would stand with me as we read, the words will be on the screen. Psalm 7. Lord, my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me. Or they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice on my hands, if I've done harm to one at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, may an enemy pursue me and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. Rise up, Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake for me. You have ordained a judgment. Let the assembly of peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his own head. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. Let's pray. Father, we know that in your word, um, you remind us that we can go from being full of problems to full of praise with just one prayer, God. For those of us that are just weary and broken down, I pray that you would give us permission and that you would prompt us to pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you take your seat? J. Diotis Roberts, an African-American theologian, says it like this. Uh, pain is inevitable. It's a part of our creaturely existence. In an essay where he writes about the existence of evil in the world, he puts it like this. He starts off and says this. Uh, Humans face what's called animal pain. Animal pain is this. We live in a physical world that is governed by natural law. And what he says is the laws of the world that we live in uh, are unbending. And what he means by that is that uh, gravity doesn't know anything about grace and mercy. Gravity is a law. It's part of the world that we live in. If you're guilty and break that law, gravity's not going to let you off of the hook. But he also talks ab uh, about nature is not just something that punishes the guilty, it's something that punishes the innocent as well. Natural disasters don't happen across moral boundaries. Everybody gets it. And there's nobody really 
responsible. I mean, so we'll spend time and plead, like, what's wrong with Atlanta weather, right? Why can't it just be cold or hot when it should be cold? We'll plead, but we know that our pleas are all for not because there's no body really responsible for how things go. I mean, yeah, God is, but y'all know what I mean. So we face suffering just by being a part of this world, and we know that that's the truth. But then one of the other things that we face as humans is we suffer at the hands of other people's inhumanity. And so here's what I mean by that. Uh, To live in this world and to be a human is to find yourself the victim of some type of injustice, being treated as you don't deserve to be treated. And here's one of the clearest ways, and I think it's what finds us in this text here, is um, you live long enough, you lead anything. And what you'll find out is what will come to you at some point in some time is slander. Slander is not just like bad words that are aimed at you, right? People can aim bad words at you, and if you don't like them, the words or the people that aim those words, you can ignore them, and it really doesn't do anything to you because you don't care what they say. Slander is different because it's not bad words that are aimed at you. It's bad words that are aimed to somebody else in order to aim that person at you. And what makes slander so hard, John Chrysostom, the old church father, would say it like this. uh, Slander is worse than cannibalism. When people fight back and forth, especially in the context of a church, the Apostle Paul is going to say, careful how you use your words. Y'all are like a group of folks that are devouring one another. He's going to go and say, no, no, slander is actually worse than that because what slander does is it doesn't eat away at you. It eats away at your reputation and you start to find out that your reputation is pretty important. Your reputation is like plumbing. You don't know how important it is until it's broken. that you find out slander, what makes it so bad is that it's so hard to fix. The first thing that makes it so hard to fix is that when slander starts to get out there and get in the air, you don't know how far it's gone. And when you don't know how far it goes, it's impossible for you to fix it. It's not just that, but when slander goes out, What it does is it gives people tinted lenses of you, and those tinted lenses affect the way that people interpret your very neutral actions. So what makes it hard to fix is that it feels like quicksand. The more you struggle, the deeper that you sink. So if somebody were to slander and say, This person, all they do is flatter. That when you go to give somebody a genuine compliment, 
it's taken in the wrong way. And it eats at your reputation and it makes it impossible for you to care if somebody slanders and says, this person is all about themselves. Then when you take it upon yourself to say, no, no, wait a minute, that's not true. You have to talk a lot about yourself in order to undo it. And so in their mind, it solidifies the things that said. So what makes slander so hard is it feels like it's a problem without a solution. And problems without solutions make us hopeless. So if you found yourself on the receiving end of this, or if you haven't yet, sometimes we're faced with only two options. One, I can just give up. I can, there's nothing that I can do, so I'm just going to give up. But nobody wants to give up. Nobody wants to be hated for something that they didn't do. Hate me for something that I actually did, but I don't want to be hated for something that I didn't do. Or what you can do is give in. And when we give in to slander, we end up feeling like the only way to correct things is to give it right back. We're getting ready to head into election season. And so from now until the end of the year, what you'll see is what Socrates said. He uh, says this, when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. And so what you'll see from now through November are both sides paying for these ads. And the goal is just to slander somebody else. And it's fine out there because we know that that's going to take place but I want you to know the same thing can take place in all of our hearts. And what slander does when it finds itself inside the community of faith is it leaves us a group of people smiling in one another's faces while tearing folks down behind their backs. And as onlookers come in, they see the smiles and they hear the slander and they say, no, 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 the church is no, no place for me. So we don't want to give in, but we don't want to give up. So what do we do? Here's what we do. We give it to God and we get something else in exchange. That's what Psalm 7 is about. Preachers in the past have called it uh, the Psalm of the slandered saints. Verses one through five, what we're going to see is the very first thing that he does as David is hit with this is he gives his complaint to God. One of the things that I want you to know about the Psalms is this. Uh, these Psalms are not experiments. It's not David trying things out and then by the time that he's done with the end of the psalm, it says, it worked. It's him reflecting on what worked. Psalm 7 is not an untested hypothesis. When you give your problems to God, they always come back better than how you gave them. Kind of like a deep fryer. I had a friend with a deep fryer. 
where it's like, you know that you like fried chicken, but then you found out, yo, you can do the same thing with salmon, with catfish. I grew up in Texas, so we used to go to the Texas State Fair, and they would fry Oreos, ice cream, butter, right? And what you start to find out is everything is better when I put it in the hands of somebody that has a deep fryer. Y'all know my complicated relationship with vegetables. I do not like okra, but you put okra in a deep fryer and that problem comes back to you better. I only bring that up because in the Psalms, this is what David does. Hear this. You go through the Psalms and some of the Psalms start off with depression with grief, with anger. Some of the Psalms start off with joy and very, very good things, but everything that he puts in God's hands comes back better. And I only bring that up because you and I tend to hold on to both our joys and our griefs. But the Psalms say you can let them go, give it all to God, and I promise you they'll come back better. Look here at verse 1. It says this, Lord my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me or they will tear me like a lion ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. David is in such deep trouble that he doesn't come to God and try to butter him up before he asks for things. He doesn't come in with these great grand, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name, although he believes all of that. He's so weighed down and heartbroken that he's saying, God, I've got to get right to it. If you don't help, things will end for me. I am in a problem without a solution. Unless you think that I'm just importing slander into this text, what you'll see in the little note right above Psalm 7 is it says this. It's a shigianon of David, which he's saying at the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Yeah, scholars believe that Cush was a guy that was from the same tribe as Saul. And so this guy Cush was um, slandering David to Saul. So much so that David or Saul thought David was out for his harm. And David had to repeatedly go to Saul and say, not Saul, I had you, bro. You were in a cave. You were asleep. I had my knife ready. And I didn't. I'm not trying to do you harm. And you have this guy, David, who's praying for his enemies, constantly finding himself at a place where he can't even vindicate himself from the slander that's aimed at him. You see that word Shigianon again in Habakkuk chapter 3. Those are the only two times that you'll see him in God's word. Scholars believe that this is a type of a song. So if you read this text and Habakkuk 3, what you'll see is that this text and Habakkuk 3 have the exact same plot line, right? They're like Tyler Perry movies. Like, you know, if, you, if you've seen one, it's like, all right, I haven't read this one, but I've read this one, right? It starts off with this request for help. And then there's this large section that's aimed at remembering who God is. And then it's a short little thing at the end that is rejoicing. So if you're going to take notes today, it's three points. My concern 
God's character, my celebration. If I take my concerns through the lens of God's character, it's going to end in my celebration. That's what he does here. At verse 3 through 5, he says this, Lord, my God, if I've done this, if there's any injustice on my hands, if I've done harm to one at peace or have plundered my adversary without cause, may an enemy pursue and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. Selah. All right. Here's what he's not saying. David is not saying that he's absolutely perfect in every regard. He's saying in this instance, in this case, God, this is 100% somebody else's fault. Sometimes we can be so sin conscious that we think every conflict starts because of two people. And sometimes you are 100% in the right. That there are sometimes where there is something that is done to you that you genuinely didn't do anything to deserve. And it's in those cases that those things weigh down on you so much. This is the same David that's going to pray, search me, O God, and see if there's anything wrong with me. What he's doing right now, he's not calling God's bluff. He's, he's saying, no, God, really? I'm innocent. But what we quickly learn is that um, innocence is not a vaccination against injustice. We live in a world where the rain clouds of injustice are constantly going to come down, and innocence, at best, is an umbrella with holes in it. There's going to be certain things that it can protect you from, but I just want you to know, and I do want you to hear this, not to make you sad, but to sober you. If you live or if you lead anything, you will find yourself at this very place. So if it doesn't apply to you, just take good notes and put a bookmark in this because I guarantee you that you're going to need it later. And with all of this, like every other problem, the only thing that changes with David is how he starts off the prayer. He's going to bring every last one of them to God. And I just want you to do the same thing. Bring your problems, your anxiety, your slander, the things that you don't know what to do with. You've got to bring those things to God. And if David's test case is not a good enough one for you to convince you of that, just look around the room at somebody with gray hair or no hair that still has a smile on their face. And I guarantee you that smile on their face is not just because nothing bad has ever happened to them. It's because in the midst of all of the unimaginable bad that has gone on with them, they've known where to give their problems and for them to come out better. Hear this, to not bring your problems to God is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't bring it to him because you don't think that he'll help. You insist on keeping them to yourself, and he doesn't help. When he doesn't help, you feel like he doesn't care, and it's not that he doesn't care. It's that you insisted on keeping your problems, and you didn't take the advice of Psalm 
5, that God's joy is yours for the taking if your problems are his for the keeping. So we bring our problems to God. And then the longest section of this psalm is just you being reminded of this this one truth. And that's this. When it comes to injustice or slander or wrong that is done, not just in this world, but to you, God is your biggest problem's biggest problem. You are not your biggest problem's biggest problem. God is your biggest problem's biggest problem. Have you ever tried to explain to a kid uh, the concept of grandparents when they don't really get that? What kids do is they see their parents as the supreme authority, the person that can dish out timeouts and dessert and all of that stuff. And then when I try to break down, no, 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 listen, hey, you know, grandma, no, grandma is my mom. And what it does is it changes her perspective. Then kids see, oh, so you mean there's somebody on top of you that can make you go to timeout, that can make you. And now the person that they saw as supreme, they see as subservient to somebody greater. David, hear this, he's grieving his problems. And the largest part of this psalm is not him doing anything about his particular problems other than reminding himself that his problems have problems. And the enemy of his enemy is his closest friend. Look here at Psalm 6. To 11, we see a passionate God. Verse 6, rise up, Lord, in your anger. And I put all those words in red for a purpose. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake for me. You have ordained a judgment. He calls out to God, and the thing that he's reminding himself about God is not God's patience, is not God's mercy, is not God's forgiveness, is not God's love in benevolence. But his love is expressed in anger and in judgment. You know, the incredible hope, right, is this guy, Bruce Banner, who things are calm when he's just this, you know, nerdy little white doctor. But then he gets angry and everybody that did him harm is in trouble. The first thing that David reminds himself about the goodness of the character of God is that God gets angry. I'm going to keep on going. Verse 7, let the assembly of peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. Not only does God get angry, but he has all authority. There's, there's nobody on top of him. So he can execute his judgment how he seems fit. Verse 8, the Lord judges the people. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Verse 6 through 8 is him saying, rise up. And then verse 9, he goes on, and I want you to hear this. What righteousness does, what goodness does, is it puts an end to evil. Verse 9, 
Let the evil of the wicked one come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. It doesn't just put uh, the public and the broad evil to an end, but it even looks at the motives of people on the inside and ensures, hear this, nobody's going to get away with it. That's what makes slander so hard to bear because it is a very real injustice that you feel. And what makes it hard is that you sit with the fact somebody's going to get away with it. That's what makes the injustices in our world so hard to obey. Is it, yeah, I know that the courts are meant to work and keep law and order in the world that we live in, but people be getting away with stuff. Verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Verse 11, look, God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. Drop down in verse 12 and 13, and look at how he talks about God's anger. It's not just a feeling that he feels, but then he's going to bring in these war terms. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He's, he's pulled back. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. I bring all of this up to say the only people that want to see God only as a loving father, a patient and a kind God, the lover of my soul. Jesus is all of that. Yes. But the people that want to see him as just that are people that have never dealt with actual injustice. What fueled the nonviolence of the civil rights movement is not just a group of people who thought of a God that creates flowers and birds. What fueled their nonviolence was psalms like this. That they knew this. Look, look, look. If God is going to go on the offensive, then what that means is that I don't have to live my life on the defensive. I know that in this world, justice is broken. And it's clear, especially as it's seen in some of the interpersonal things that relate to us. But what he's saying is that although justice seems like it's broken in this world, I don't have to trip, I don't have to sweat because it's under warranty. Have you ever had the AC break in your house and you think that it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to fix? And you call in and they say, hey, read the serial number. And you read it and they say, I've got good news. It's still under warranty. So what that means is that the responsibility to fix it doesn't lie on your back or with your pockets. There's going to be somebody else that comes and we're going to take care of all of this. As David is reminding himself of this, look, he's starting off with reminding, no, no, listen, God's going to take care of all of this. 
God's going to be violent when it comes to injustice. God is not indifference. He doesn't ignore it. To ignore it is itself an injustice. We've said it before, but look, anger and wrath is not the enemy of love. Anger and wrath in a broken world is often the expression of love and the most true expression of love. When the thing that you love is attacked, if you are not angry, you do not love that thing. A mama bear shows her teeth and her fangs, shows her wrath as a sign of love when her cub is attacked. It doesn't make sense to set those things apart. So what the psalmist is doing is as he's feeling this sense of, I'm in this problem that I can't solve. There's this grave injustice that's been done to me. He's reminding himself of God's character and nature and who he is. And then in verse 11, here's what he does. He puts himself in God's shoes and says, look, God is a God who shows his wrath or shows his anger every day. Here's what I mean by that. What social media has done for us is it's provided us with a, a kind of a glimpse of what it is to be God here in this world. And here's what I mean. It just gives us a foretaste of what it is to in an instant be brought into the loop of all the trouble that goes on in the world. And there are times when you can sit in the house all day and have a very, very good day and you scroll and scroll and scroll and by the time you turn your phone off, you're weighed down and you're angry because you've seen all of it. But even in the midst of all of the stuff that you've seen, you haven't even scratched the iceberg. You've missed so much. And what David is saying is, no, no, look, this is a God who sees everything. I know you may have felt forgotten by God or unseen, but God has never missed a word of slander that's been spoken against him. God has never missed somebody being vulnerably exposed and molested by somebody that they trust. God has never missed a little boy or a girl being trapped. God has never missed somebody that's been so beaten down by life that they give up and the only thing that they feel would ease their pain is self-medicating on substances that will destroy them. God, God has never missed any of that. And that's why he says a, a, a God that sees us, he's angry every day and his anger, hear this, is a sign of his love. And this God is going to do something about it. Contrary to popular opinions of him. J. Cole has this one song, Change, and in the, this song, Change, he just talks about all of life. And there's this one little phrase, I think, that captures common sentiment about God, where he says this, uh, I believe if God was real, he'd never judge a man. 
because he knows us all and therefore he would understand the ignorance that makes a brother take his brother's life, the bitterness and pain that's got him cheating on his wife. And so when he says, no, 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 if God's really real and compassionate and full of love, then I believe God wouldn't judge because he knows all of the things that make us do those sins. That his God would just let people off of the hook. That is not comforting to anybody experiencing injustice. That feels like compounding injustice. When the guilty party has been caught red-handed and they get off of the hook. God does understand and he is full of compassion. Look, and verse 12 and 13 show us how God shows his compassion. Look here at verse 12. If anyone doesn't repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. God's consideration and kindness is not seen in him not doing anything. It's seen in him delaying what he does. Here's what I mean. Verse 12 and 13 is all preparatory. Things that you and I would have to do. It's what's called anthropomorphic language. That's just a fancy way of saying David's just trying to put God in your shoes so that you can see how God does things. Listen. A God who created the world in an instant does not need more than an instant to judge. If God, if God's anger was an oven, God's oven doesn't have to be preheated. It's already ready. When God wants to judge, do you know what God does? He judges. When God delays the judgment, do you know why? So that verse 12, so that people would have the chance to repent. God's kindness is not justice denied. God's kindness is justice delayed. And we live inside of it. And it's hard because the world is not how we would want it to be. And it pains us, but we have to remind ourselves about the character of God. But in that same breath, look here at verse 14. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives of trouble and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he has made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his head. What he brings up is, look, look, look. although God delays it, one thing that we have to remind ourselves of is God's going to make sure that the wicked get it. So nobody's going to get away with it, but instead, the way that God is going to bring insult to injury is to ensure that the people with these schemes not only get what they deserve, but they get what they actually tried to give out. 
History is full of examples like this. Napoleon, 1812, set out to conquer Russia. 700,000 men. And so what he does is he goes in, charges in the winter, and pursues them. They're outmatched. So what they do is they kind of leave from their town to towns, and they retreat. And as they retreat, they set their towns on fire to burn the towns and all of the supplies. So in his greed, as he advances further and further and further, he's actually starting to dig his own grave. Because he gets to the end, and he finds out we don't have enough supplies to last. And then when he starts to retreat, he finds out, oh, Russia winter is a different winner than France winter. And we don't have coats. And so as he advanced, he actually dug his grave. I could give you a million of examples of this from history, but I'm just going to skip straight to the good part. At the beginning of time in the creation of, wor uh, uh, of the world, you and I as people had an enemy of our souls who figured that the greatest way that he could ensure our death was to slander God himself. Say that God was untrustworthy. In the restrictions that God gave, God was trying to do something harmful to us. Adam and Eve, our first parents, bit the bait. He knew how God's law and how God worked out this world where our first parents, the same way that our mom and dad passed down their genes to us, that our first parents would pass down their guilt to all of us. But even in that, God made a promise. A promise that he wouldn't enact right then and there. A promise that would be delayed that one day a son's going to come into the world. And this son is going to experience this very death that was brought about by this sin. But this death is actually going to be the thing that destroys Satan once and for all. And hear this, when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, the Bible talks about that as God's vindication. And Satan introducing sin into the world, the snowball that's avalanched to the injustices that we see, all that he's done is he's dug his own grave. Sin, your biggest problem, has a bigger problem. And that's God. God is going to right all of the wrongs. That may not have done it for you. What I found is like we talked about you know, a few weeks ago. Um, your sin is always easier to recognize when somebody else wears it. God's grace in the abstract, maybe, oh, that's, yeah, that's good and that's fine and I know God has done it. But God's grace gets the most glory when you find out that it's been tailor-made for you. David, in this instance, could pray and cry out to God and ask for him, God, save me according to my righteousness. I haven't done anything wrong. If I've defrauded an adversary and done harm to somebody who wanted peace for me, then don't answer me. 
And David was justified in this instant. Do you know the problem with this prayer? Is that David kept on living. And David didn't have the power to defraud somebody without impunity right here. But there was a time where he was a king. And do you know what? He didn't just defraud his adversary. There was a man that was out on the battle lines fighting for David's peace. And what David does, now this is some real Tyler Perry type stuff. David <laughs> takes his wife, has a baby by her, doesn't want to get caught, has this man killed. I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear this good. David prays this prayer that God would destroy people who are guilty of this injustice. And in praying this prayer, once David puts it out, somebody should have told him that what you write stays on the internet. There's no way for you to scrub it. This prayer is actually him digging his own grave. This very prayer should be able to be brought back up to him in the role of his own tweets as an indictment to bring out his hypocrisy. But, you know the good news about God? God's slow in distributing justice. When we're on the receiving end of injustice, it's it's frustrating when we're on the side of giving injustice. It's comforting. So what took place is David dug his own grave, but the good news of the gospel to all of us that have ever dug our own grave uh, is that Jesus climbed into that grave. He didn't fall in. He knew the trap was coming, and he went anyway. And after he climbs into the grave, he closes the door, and he puts an out-of-order sign on the front for everybody that would repent and put their trust in him. So that part of being human is that we will suffer and we'll find ourselves in the grave. But the out-of-order sign is for all of us who repented. The grave doesn't work like it used to. It won't hold any one of us in. We'll be raised to life just like he was raised to life, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And in glory, I want you to hear this, we will experience a future and a time with no injustice. And we'll praise at the end like David did. I want you to hear this. He says, I will thank the Lord for his righteousness, for his righteousness. It's different than mine. He doesn't just destroy his enemies by force, but by friendship. I will sing about the name of the Lord most high. And what we see here is that his gratitude in God's perfect justice, gratitude, this praise, this worship, this reflex of our soul has the ability to, and I want you to hear this, overshadow the present grief of injustice. 
Gratitude for God's perfect justice that is coming one day has the ability, hear this, to overshadow. Here's what I didn't say. It doesn't have the ability to erase it. We still grieve for injustices that are done and we work to undo them, but we recognize, hear this, there's something else coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming and it casts a large shadow. So we are just reminded, and I want you to hear this, there's something coming that will fix it. And for those of us that have put our trust in the Lord, we find ourselves on the right side of things. And all that this psalm teaches us is that we don't have to wait until that day comes to rejoice. We can start now. Thanking God and praising him for what it is that he will do. There's a difference in preparing your house um, for naturally born kids and for adoptive kids. If you're going to have kids the uh, nat natural way, then there's a pretty clear time frame. I've, I've got about nine months to prepare so I can procrastinate through the first eight. And I've just got, all right, at eight, I can really get ready. The thing about ad adopting is this, is you go from an adult to a parent, not in a matter of months, but in a matter of minutes. And so knowing that time is coming, do you know what you do? You prepare as if it's already here. You fix that room up and you know that it's going to be filled before you know it. That's what our worship is. As we find ourselves in the midst of this grief, in the midst of facing all these injustices, I want you to hear this slander when it's done to us. Uh, we don't ignore it. We don't act like it's gone. We don't act like it's just magically going to vanish. We request God's help. We remind ourselves of his goodness. And then we spend our time right now praising and rejoicing because we know that we're on the right side of this thing. We serve a God that cares more about the wrongs that are done to us than we do. We serve a God who has promised to right every wrong. And that's not meant to excuse us from the work that we have here in this world. It's meant to fuel us in the work that we have here in this world when things get hard. The past three weeks, I've tried to end each week with just um, a quote from somebody who I feel like exemplified this in their life. Uh, so if you would, extend to me a few extra minutes to read to you an extended quote from the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, this comes from out of the book that I passed out just to set a little context. What he said was this. For the first 24 years of his life, uh, he said life was easy. He had a mom and a dad. He lived in a place where he felt like he didn't experience much injustice, slander. He breezed through school, college, doctoral work, all of that. And then he found himself walking 
in his calling. Preparing to go to Montgomery to start to do the work that he felt like that the Lord had laid on his heart. And instantly, the injustice and the slander came like a flood. There was one night where his wife went to sleep and he got a phone call from somebody saying, do not come. If you come, it will be the last time that you set foot anywhere. And what he said was that he, he just couldn't shake it. So he got up, brewed a cup of coffee, and then he said this, look, uh, the words will be here on the screen. I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. Finally, I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had almost gone, I decided to take my problem to God. I want you to know giving your problems to God is not an untested hypothesis. My head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I'm here taking my stand for what I believe is right, but now I'm afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 7. David saying, God, I can't do this by myself. I need your help. Look, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for the truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. Look, after the request, remember. Let us remember there is a great benign power in the universe whose name is God, and he is able to make a way out of no way. I want to stop right there. Three nights after this event took place, do you know what took place to his home? His house was bombed. And what he's going to say at that time is, I got the news of it, and it was the strangest thing. I received it with a sense of calm that I had never experienced. In remembering the character of God, it enabled him to rejoice. He's able to make a way out of nowhere and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. I brought up his life at the end because a lot of what I said could come off as injustice is a reality in this world, so just pray and remember that God's going to solve things and don't spend your life trying to undo it. And the reason I brought up his life was to show, no, 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 this was somebody who I believe believed Psalm 7 deeply. And I think he believed it so deeply that he spent his life fighting injustice and dying an early death because of it.
You had somebody who, although he did wrong, like all of us, was slandered in a lot of cases without cause. And the slander didn't cause him to give up. Nor did it cause him to give in and do the same thing. There was this higher moral ground that he treaded on. And the fruit of his labor was vindicated. He was able to do that because of his faith and confidence in following in the footsteps of a greater man who spent his life fighting injustices from the greatest to the least, was slandered without cause, died an early death, but was vindicated. I want you to know Tyler Perry is not the only one that writes the same storyline. God does. And everybody that follows him will likely experience that same slander. But we won't have to fight to vindicate ourselves. If God's on the offensive, we don't have to be defensive. We are free to request his help, to remember that he is, in fact, our biggest problem's biggest problem, and to spend our time in the now rejoicing and praising as the fuel for the work that he calls us to do in this life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us in the way that you um, encourage our souls when we're so discouraged and we find ourselves facing problems without solutions. Um, Father, would you remind us that there is no problem without a solution when we're on your side. Give us the grace to remember the best parts about your character and to trust in it to the point of peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.